we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and you're listening to Talking Australia. Today, I'm talking to Peggy Rissmiller. Peggy has been studying echidnas for 30 years. From their bizarre mating rituals to their playful swimming habits, Peggy has seen it all. We chat to her about what it was like witnessing the echidna's response to the Kangaroo Island fires and what it takes to study the elusive echidna in the wild. While you may think you know a lot about echidnas, this episode of Talking Australia is sure to serve you up a whole lot of surprises. Peggy, you've been studying echidnas for 30 years, but tell me where it all started. Oh, yes. Well, (laughs) where it all started. It it started probably way back um, in rural Ohio, where I was born. And um, actually, echidnas didn't come into my life until a little bit later because I've always been a reptile person and I always loved tiger snakes, and I, well, just snakes in general. And um, one of the things I always did as a kid was if I was out mowing the lawn and I, and I cut the tail off of a snake and they happened to be garter snakes, which weren't um, actually poisonous, I would go in and my mom was very understanding and she'd put a Band-Aid on it and say, you know, just take it out and release it. And then later, um, I saw tiger snake, tiger snakes, I saw garter snakes that were actually out basking in the snow because it's very cold in Ohio in the wintertime. And I thought this is really strange. And so I went back and told my family about these snakes being out in the snow and everyone said, you're crazy. You didn't see that. It doesn't happen. And that put me on the pathway of, I think, my biological career and wanting to know more. So it, it turns out that, um, yeah, Ohio was really a place to be, but I wanted to get away. So I became an exchange student at the tender age of, I had just turned 17 and I went to Germany and I ended up in Germany for nearly uh, 20 years, went to university there. And I had the opportunity then to work with some reptiles there, which were the European green lizard. And I started finding out a lot about body temperature regulation in reptiles. And I just, yeah, I just fell in love with with what I was doing. And when I was completing my PhD, I met a lecturer from the University of Adelaide. And I thought, well, I really had wanted to come to Australia when I was in, you know, teenage years, but this was in the 60s. There were very, very few exchange programs at that time. So when I was finishing up my PhD and I met Roger Seymour, he said, look, you know, there's lots of reptiles in Australia, nice big reptiles. And, you know, you could probably continue some of your studies. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. So applied for a number of postdoc positions. And it turned out that I couldn't get a full postdoc to work with reptiles. So I ended up getting half a grant to work with tiger snakes and half a grant to work with echidnas. And I thought, ah, a mammal. Hmm. Never thought about working with a mammal before, but I thought, okay, weird enough, I have an egg-laying mammal and a live-bearing reptile. 
So that's what brought me to Australia, yes, in 1988. And then working with tiger snakes. And then one of my first jobs was to go into the field and find echidnas with an egg in the pouch. And what does it take to study echidnas? Patience. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this was the interesting thing about echidnas when I arrived. There were a lot of unknowns. And, you know, one of them was, well, no one had actually, no European had actually ever written about how echidnas mate in the wild. So we knew nothing about echidnas mating. Therefore, we knew nothing about, okay, what is the gestation period or the time between mating and egg laying? And like I said, and that was my first job to go out and find echidnas with an egg in the pouch. So, um, so we set about working with groups of volunteers here on Kangaroo Island and putting transmitters on echidnas, following them in the field, hoping to find out, you know, when they laid their eggs. Um, what Roger wanted to do was actually measure the respiration of an echidna egg because he was an egg physiologist and he wanted to actually measure echidna eggs because he'd measured the respiration in everything else that laid an egg except a mammal. So it was a tall order and um, we set out to try to find echidnas with an egg in the pouch. But it was during this time then we were able to actually see echidnas mating for the first time. And one of my very first publications uh, with Roger in 1991 was, um, you know, basically how echidnas mate. As someone coming from a non-science background, it sort of shocks me that such a prolific animal like the echidna is so understudied. How can it be that one of Australia's most widespread mammals is one of our least understood? Yeah, well, echidnas are definitely not prolific. I mean, they have been, as you said, it, Echidnas have been called the most common native mammal because they can be found in every every habitat and you know in every type of ecosystem, and which makes them they're very very versatile. They're very very adaptive. And why we haven't known a lot about them is because they're so bloody secretive. They're, they, they, you know, they are not an easy animal to work with. They're not social. They're solitary living. Um, you know, we knew nothing about um, age of sexual maturity and all those good things. These were questions that were asked in 1834 by, by Richard Owen, who was the founder of the British uh, Natural History Museum in the UK. And he had looked at all these, you know, weird animals that were sent to him from Australia, including the echidna. And in 1834, he wrote and said, we've learned everything about this strange animal that we can learn by looking at, you know, dead specimens. But to answer basically seven questions about reproduction, the only way we can do that is to see these animals in the field and watch them in their natural habitat. Well, in 1988, when I started, only one and a half of his questions from 1834 had been answered. So, and, and why? And it was, you know, it was the advancement of technology for me because we had radio tracking devices that we could put on echidnas and actually follow individuals. And that's how we were able to answer all of his questions and of course, add a whole lot more. So echidnas are secretive. They're, you know, reclusive. They're not social. They're just fantastic. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're, they're the ultimate animal to, to try to study because they are so difficult. And what's it like studying echidnas from the Pelican Lagoon Research and Wildlife Centre on Kangaroo Island? That must have been really crazy during the fires. 
Well, the bushfires here did not reach us on the east end of the island. So, so the Pelican Lagoon Research Centre is on the east end of the island. Um, we study um, all over the island, not just here. Uh, the peninsula that I live and work on is about 15 square kilometres. It took us 10 years of marking individuals to find out what the population was here. So that's how difficult it is. So we found out that in our 15 square kilometres, there's only about 40 to 45 individuals. So there's not a lot. So at the west end of the island, um, we've been studying there too. There's been a lot of echidnas that have been marked that we've been able to recapture. Post-fire, it was, it was really, really interesting. Echidnas are great diggers. And at the time of the fire, the young of the previous year's uh, echidnas were in their nursery burrows. And these are all things that, you know, I've been able to discover over the last 35 years is, um, you know, not only when they reproduce, but how often a female reproduces, where she puts her young. And they dig special nursery burrows for their young. And so during the fire, the young were still in the nursery burrows. Most of the adults survived as well because they're really, really good at, at digging in. They, they go into any type of soil. They insulate themselves with the dirt between their spines. Um, Post-fire, when it was still smoking, we found echidnas out foraging because they were still you know, an abundant sort of um, invertebrate population there. So we found then these footprints in the ash where you could see where the females had been, had been foraging and out digging. We were able to actually discover a couple of the nursery burrows with the young emerging for the first time while it was still smoking. It was, it, it was just, it's, it's one of those things, echidnas are survivors. I mean, they are the longest surviving mammal in the world as a monotreme. And so they have all these survival mechanisms that we still are, you know, coming to terms with to try to understand and, uh, you know, what is happening with them. But the echidnas were really good survivors of the, of the fire. And of course, you know, wildfires are natural in Australia. It's, you know, fires have formed Australia. And as biologists, we, we usually say that a fire is nature's restart button. So what happened on Kangaroo Island, yes, it, um, there was a lot of habitat burned, but it's amazing to see what has come back. It's amazing to find out, you know, how many, how many different species that we hadn't actually studied before um, are fairly abundant and how well they've adapted. I remember seeing all these images of echidnas with their spines basically burnt almost to their skin. And I guess that's, you know, how they survive in those scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Echidnas, um, the, the spines are actually modified hairs. So, you know, if you think of the hairs on your head getting thicker and thicker, that's what an echidna spine is. So it's very difficult also to melt them. But yeah, so the fire has to be fairly intense. But echidnas have all kinds of wonderful different types of physiology. Um, I actually call myself an environmental physiologist because physiology is my background. And looking at how an animal's whole physiology allows it to adapt to its circumstances. And the echidna is amazing because they have one of the lowest body temperatures of any mammal. So their, their active body temperature is only 31 to 33 degrees, which is much lower than ours. And when they're in a situation such as a fire or when there's in a situation when there's not a lot of food around, they go what we call torpid. So they can lower their body temperature to just above ambient. They lower their heart rate. 
they lower their respiration, and they lower their metabolism. And this is one of their amazing survival strategies that they use, you know, not only during fires, but they use, you know, at any time. In fact, they actually passively let their body temperature lower when they're inactive. And so they're very, very energy efficient. Wow, they're like little survivors. Yes, they are. Yes, it was years and years ago. I was I was giving a talk at um, one of the the science weeks in the UK, and I was talking about you know these wonderful physiological mechanisms of the echidna and that they might be one of the animals to send into space. And all of a sudden I was getting phone calls from NASA and other people saying, really, can we do this? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Now I want to talk about some of the echidna's more peculiar behaviors. We've all seen those images of the so-called echidna trains. Can you take me through what exactly they're doing and what that mating process entails? Well, as I said, echidnas are solitary living. Um, one of the first things we wanted to find out is, okay, when when do they actually become sexually mature? And so it took me probably following echidnas for at least, oh, for about 15 years before I wrote my paper on sexual maturity, because we found out that it's a minimum of five and sometimes up to 12 before they actually sexually mature. So once they become sexually mature, the female, another thing that took us years to find out, the female only reproduces one single young every three to five years. But the males can be reproductively active every year. So that means if there's going to be a sexually mature and active female, she's going to have a bunch of male suitors. And that's what forms the echidna train. So they're solitary living except during the breeding season. And the breeding season can start anytime now from late May and go through July and um, usually by August, even across all across Australia, the echidna mating season is over. So it is during the winter time. So they're, you know, they're very good. They, they don't mind cool weather. In fact, they're, they're adapted to living more in cool weather than in than hot weather. So the mating season is coming up very soon. You're going to have one female and she's going to attract any number of males. And that's what we call the, the mating train the love train or whatever you want to call it. I have to ask, what's the longest echidna train you've ever seen? The longest echidna train I've seen is 11 animals. And that was, yeah. Oh my gosh. That was, that was, that was very long, but there has been a couple historic records um, here on Kangaroo Island. Um, It was one of the shipwrecked people down back in the 1800s. And he reported seeing, I think it was like, he called them hedgehogs. He reported seeing 30 hedgehogs outside of his cabin. <laughs> well, that's a lot of choice. That must be a very difficult decision. Well, the, the mating train itself, the, they can go on for a number of days and even for a number of weeks. And it can be that the female attracts, um, you know, two or three males on one day. The next day there might be nobody. And the next day there might be five because she's only ever going to mate with one single male. And that's another, you know, perhaps a strategy, you know, from being around for 120 million years, they know what's going on. They only have to mate once. But which male is actually the successful male is something we still haven't figured out. Now, you can imagine that, you know, echidnas are not aggressive. They don't have teeth. They don't claw each other. But if there is more than one male with the female when she's actually ready to mate, then the males will have this sort of push and shove head on head. They shove each other around <laughs> until there's one left. Wow, I just can't picture that. It's so weird. <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, 
it's weird to picture echidnas being aggressive at all because they're probably the most you know, pacifistic native animal that we have. Um, so yeah, the males can push each other around. And then for the mating itself, because all the genitals are internal, you can't look at an echidna and tell if it's a male or a female. There's just no way to do it. Uh, you know, they don't have a permanent pouch. Um, they don't have teats or nipples. Um, the, 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 the penis is out only is inside the body and is only outside the body for reproduction. Uh, you don't see any testes because they're also inside the body. They're pea size outside the breeding season. They're golf ball size during the breeding season, but you don't see that. Anyway, so the males sort of compete with each other and then he has to dig beside the female. The females usually sort of lean out prone, often under a bush or something. And the male will dig beside her because he has to get under her on his side and they mate cloaca on cloaca. Whoa, that's also a weird image. Yeah, it's not just a prickly problem, but he actually, because of all the spines, he actually has to get under the female. And this is, he is usually, they're usually head to head. He digs beside her until he can place his tail under her tail and they make cloaca on cloaca. Now we've had film crews here looking at this saying, when is, when is something going to happen? And it's like, um, it's happening. <laughs> and then the penis is only outside of the body for copulation. And the other thing is that it can take a minimum of an hour and up to 90 minutes for this for this single meeting. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. One of the other behaviours that AG readers ask about is the swimming. They tend to freak out if they see an echidna paddling along in a body of water. Yes. Tell me, what exactly are they doing? And is it possible that echidnas exist because a platypus once deserted the water and evolved spines? Um, you know, I, you know, the one thing about when echidnas and platypus divulged, you know, from each other, or, you know, if there was a common ancestor and what happened, that's all still sort of up in the air. And um, as far as the swimming, you know, basically every mammal can swim. And, you know, there's no reason why echidnas shouldn't swim. Um, we were, you know, we radio track echidnas all over the island. And when I worked at the West End radio tracking, there was this lovely uh, rocky river and the echidnas would come to the river. And this is in the middle of winter. And, um, and they would just swim across to the other side. It's like, you know, why not? And I get, I get reports from farmers all the time who see echidnas that can easily walk around a dam, but they decide to swim across it. And lots and lots of reports, because we've been doing this echidna watch since, since the 1990s, that on the Great Ocean Road, I get phone calls, you know, we rescued this echidna that was out in the surf and we brought it back and, you know, put it down and watched it and after... 10 minutes it decided to go back out again <laughs> it's like wh why shouldn't they have fun you know echidnas i think are like a lot of other mammals they can have fun and also you know it helps them cool down because they don't sweat and they don't pant so in the summertime why not take a dip yeah and it also makes sense because they have the perfect snorkel technically 
They do have the perfect snorkel. It's been, it hasn't been very often that um, echidnas have been filmed, but many, many years ago, um, we did a, a documentary film, Echidna the Survivor, and there's some brilliant footage of, of echidnas swimming. And they do, you know, dog paddle. And when they, when they uh, swim across and um, they're, they're very, very good at it. Not only that, the, the spines, which are not hollow, but they have that pithy material like our hair, helps them be very, very buoyant. Wow. So is it true that echidnas can live up to 50 years old? Yes. Yes. Echidnas, echidnas are, well, echidnas in captivity have lived much longer than 50 years, but here on Kangaroo Island, we have some very, very good records um, from people who, who've kept their, their farm records for years. And we know that they can live for at least 50 years. I have one that I've, I've been here 35 years and I have one called Big Mama <laughs> and Casey. And uh, Big Mama was known to my partner before I came. And she is now at least 45 years old. And she is still reproducing. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's so amazing. Well, they, because, because of their physiology, um, they, you know, they, they have that survival gene in them, I think. And, and um, some people say that they are also less prone to stress. Now, looking at mainland echidnas and Tassie echidnas, the Tassie echidnas tend to have a lot more hair. Is it possible they could be a totally different species? Good question. And now, so far, as, as far as echidnas go, we only recognise subspecies. And um, there's still five recognised subspecies, but that has nothing to do with their DNA because up to now they haven't been able to determine that, but it's all morphological. So if you look at echidnas on Kangaroo Island, which is a subspecies of its own, um, they're called Tachyglossus aculeatus multiaculeatus. Aculeatus means with spines and multiaculeatus means with many spines. So if you look at Kangaroo Island echidnas, they look very spiky compared to some of the mainland echidnas. Now Tasmania, which is also a subspecies, those are the ones that are highly hairy, so to speak, that a lot of times you can, you can hardly see any spines on their back. And they do have, they do have furry foreheads compared to, compared to the Kangaroo Island echidna and other mainland echidnas. Um, on the mainland, the, the, the spines of the echidna tend to be um, in a lot of areas, a lot of fatter and shorter. And so, you know, up and, until we can actually do the DNA, we will not know if we have different species. Um, there is some question now, I guess, that um, perhaps we, maybe we only have two or maximum three subspecies, but until they can actually do the DNA, um, that is an unknown, unknown question. Now, they've been able to uh, map the platypus genome and uh, they're working on the echidna one. So I work with a group from University of Adelaide the, with the genetics lab, and um, they're doing something called the Echidna CSI now, the Conservation Science Initiative. So, so they're looking a lot into um, the echidna and are there different species of echidnas and how many echidnas are still left in Australia. So we've been working very, very closely together for the last few years. So the work goes on all over Australia, not just on Kangaroo Island. Um, but I do tell people, if you want to see echidnas, go to Tasmania, because as far as echidnas per area, there's more in Tasmania than any place else in Australia. It's like an echidna wonderland or something. <laughs> it is sort of like an echidna wonderland, yeah. The, the thing that I find uh, really interesting with, with the echidnas is that, you know, in the past, some people were saying that oh, they have a little bit of reptilian background. 
and it does it does make you wonder about that because of their temperature their body temperature regulation um you know which which brings me back to the fascinating work also with the reptiles here on kangaroo island because the tiger snake which a lot of people you know don't like to talk about they are fascinating in their own right and have a very very low operative body temperature compared to our beautiful rosenberg's goanna which is the the other animal that that i work a lot with which has a body temperature close to our own. So in the reptile world, we have all of these adaptations to, to ecosystems and to climate. And you would think, okay, how does the echidna fit into that? Because they too have this variable temperature. So I think, you know, trying to compare reptiles and echidnas, uh, we know that they're, they're true mammals, but the reptile word world itself is, is fascinating. And I guess your study of reptiles really influenced your study of echidnas a lot. Um, well, sort of. It's The interesting thing is that, you know, very few people work with reptiles uh, and very few, very few females too. So in, in Germany, when I was working with the European green lizard, I would go to the herpetology conferences and I'd always be the only female who was presenting. And, and my, my interest was not only body temperature regulation, but also reproduction. And, and what, and what I learned when I was doing my PhD is that it was photo period. So it was day length that actually regulated how the lizards responded to temperature. And, and it's very similar actually here in Australia. So it's the day length that often regulates reproduction, uh, not only in reptiles, but also in many mammals. And, um, and that's what's happening that's what's happening right now also with with our Rosenberg's goannas uh, because they do they really do love the higher temperatures. But the amazing thing about them is that they will start becoming active again in August when our ground temperatures are the lowest. So how reptiles regulate their body temperatures is something that I think has been grossly overlooked and uh, really not studied at all because it's so fascinating that they've been able to adapt to all types of climates around Australia, all the different reptiles. Look at the ones that are active at night, you know? How are they regulating their body temperature? That's something that people just don't think about. They think about reptiles need the sun, they need to get out there and, you know, bask, but, you know, some of them are doing it differently. I just want to go back to echidna populations. As someone who's studied echidnas for 30 years, are you concerned for the future of echidnas? I'm very concerned about the future of echidnas in Australia because... What is happening on Kangaroo Island is that we've learned how often females reproduce or how often females don't reproduce. It's only one young every three to five years. We know that with uh, predation, uh, there's very little natural predation, which is only Rosenberg's goanna. So with natural predation, if a female, you know, lives for, you know, 45 years and is reproducing, she may only have, you know, eight young. We know that natural predation is about 15%. So, you know, very, you know, maybe a few of those young are going to survive. Now, the, the increased predation, especially from feral cats, um, is, is, is a big, big problem here on the island. And because of the predation, we know that perhaps only one offspring might survive. So what's happening on the mainland? You know, if Kangaroo Island is supposed to be a great place for echidna populations, what's happening on the mainland where there's more predation? Uh, there's foxes, um, there's a lot more vehicles. We know that the young, after following young, that 
they can travel, you know, 40, 45 kilometers to establish their own home ranges. Can they do that in different places on the mainland? Do we have shrinking populations? Because echidnas can live for 50 years, you know, it's, is it going to be sometime people are going to look around and say, hey, what happened to the echidnas? You know, it, it's, yes, I'm very, very concerned that we know very little about what's happening with echidna populations on the mainland. And, um, you know, they might be survivors, but if we increase things like, you know, uh, roadkill um, and, and feral, feral predation, then there's a, yeah, there's a big question about what might happen to them in the future. How can everyday Australians contribute to the conservation of echidnas? People can help echidnas if they look around and look at shrinking habitats and, you know, try to, you know, if, if they have these shrinking habitats, because that's, we know that it's happening around all over Australia and with shrinking habitats and corridors, we want, you know, we want, we want corridors of vegetation. If we can have corridors of vegetation, people can actually, you know, look in their local areas. We know that, you know, we have a lot of suburban echidnas, echidnas in um, uh, Adelaide, down, you know, in, in Brown Hill Creek and different places, they'll go through culverts. It's amazing how many call-outs that Sydney wildlife gets because of echidnas in the city, in the metropolitan area. How do they get there? Well, they travel, they do different things. I think if people make their gardens more wildlife friendly, um, people have to be aware of their, you know, of their pets, their, you know, their dogs, their cats, things like that. So I think if people are basically really aware of shrinking habitats and how they can help in that direction, that's really going to help not only the echidnas, but all of our wildlife. Thanks so much for chatting to me today, Peggy. I really appreciate it. Well, you're certainly welcome. There's always, there's always great things to talk about echidnas and, uh, and tiger snakes and goannas and all of our other wonderful wildlife. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.